I've had occasion to observe before now how the law will never set us free and how persistent we have a persistent temptation to think that it might. It just might get us out of the difficulty of some of the ambiguities of life. If we could just have a rule that we could all follow, then we needn't get all bound up with wondering whether we're doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, saying the right thing, and so on. It's almost like what we want is that plumb line. Amos, Amos talks about, has a vision from God of a plumb line being dropped in the midst of the people of Israel by which God can measure how straight and righteous Israel is. And what you do when the wall isn't standing straight is you either have to bolster it or you knock it down and start again and start over. And God's moral ambiguity is a fact of life for much of us much of the time. And it is Amos and the people of Israel who are going to bear the consequence of the kinds of decisions that the kings were making. Now, who knows what the motives of kings and leaders of Israel really were? Perhaps they did something, uh, something, made decisions, all kinds of things got in the way of their doing the right thing. Perhaps they saw themselves as defending their land, defending their people when they were making these alliances that God saw and Mamos saw as un, untrustworthy and unrighteous. Uh, perhaps they were uh, acting out of fear. Perhaps they were acting as a need to be liked or some combination of motives, some of which were accessible to them and some of which were hidden. They may even have declared a principle to be above all others. I will take care, I will protect the people in my care at all costs. And I will do whatever is necessary that I believe is right to protect the people in my care. And suddenly what they've done is created a kind of law, a kind of rule that will help them sort out uh, ambiguities. It's a law that seems to justify all the compromises, but a law that ends up being a kind of prison that the people will bear the consequence. There, it will be as though their wife was a prostitute and their children slain by the sword. Amos, the herdsman, dresser of sycamore trees himself, in a way becomes the prophetic sign. There is a right thing to do in the eyes of God, and waffling and compromise rarely changes that reality. So with Amos in mind, let's not be too quick to judge the priest and the Levite of Jesus' story. What was going on with them? There's a lot in this story about insiders and outsiders, compassion, common humanity, mercy, actions rather than intentions and so on. But today, I just want to focus on one piece, and that's, that's what about these people who passed by on the other side? What got in the way of their doing the right thing? And who paid the price for their inaction? Anyone who's studied this story, and that includes all those of you who've been on an inquirer's retreat, knows the theory that the priests and Levites were perhaps trying to ensure moral purity by not risking touching a dead body and therefore being unclean under the law. And that is, of course, part of the reason, possible reason, why they may have passed by on the other side. But are these characters necessarily and really that one-dimensional? Who among us cannot see ourselves thinking things as we pass by? Maybe it's a trap. Or 
Uh, would I be enabling if I helped? Or, because clearly the person had been irresponsible. So maybe I can blame the victim for he should have known better than going down that dangerous road uh, without protection. Or perhaps I'm just going by and I think, please God, not now, I'm late. <laughs> and, I, and these kind of motives are fairly accessible to most of us, but then we also have all of the motives that cause us to pass by that are less accessible, that often we don't even know we have. Uh, I'm aware that sometimes I can miss someone doing something nice for me because I have this sort of hair trigger that, that, that just can't tolerate anything that smells of manipulation or my being controlled or my being managed. I don't need to control you. I just need not to be controlled, right? And I don't need to go deeply into the therapeutic issues behind this, <laughs> behind this confession. But what it means is I can miss things. You know, someone throws a surprise party, and I have to have a good talking to myself before I can enjoy it. Why wasn't I consulted? <laughs> so it doesn't mean I'm completely free with respect to that, but I have learned some things. I can easily imagine myself seeing this chat by the side of the road and getting angry that my life's being messed with because someone else is trying to do something. And that, that will sabotage me. I'll go by on the other side. I'll be harumphing until it was too late to do anything about it, feeling quite self-righteous. See, I've set up a justification for my not responding. I don't really know I've done it. But I'm setting up a justification, self-justification. And by the time I realize I've done it, it's too late. And I've passed by the other side. And I have to remember the victim is my neighbor. And one day I might be the victim myself. Well, what, what gets in your way when you don't do the right thing? What gets in your way? What triggers your own initial sense of self-righteousness that is often a clue that we're going astray? That sense that maybe we are justifying ourselves can be like a plumb line in our own moral and spiritual life. It's a clue that we're messing up and it's usually a clue that someone else is going to bear the consequence. Now, I'm not, I like to be pleasing, but I'm not driven or motivated by a need to please others. But I know that many of us are. And many of us wind up saying one thing to one person and another thing to another person just to be pleasing. We get ourselves in terrible messes, terrible knots, when all we want to do is be loved. We wind up looking for love in all the wrong places instead of being clear about who we are and, and what we're up to. And so maybe that's going, we, we're going past the victim, and suddenly we've got to be the nicest person in the world. We forget that the job of savior has already adequately been filled, and we charge in, ready to do. You know, we're going to be better than any Samaritan, and we're going to take care of this poor victim, staying with him as long as it takes, not leaving for a couple of days and saying, I'll pay you to the, to the innkeeper, and then getting terribly hurt when our wife or our husband or our children are irritated with us for not coming home when we said we would, at least letting them know what was going on. So we missed another birthday party or another ball game because of pressure of work. And then we feel hurt that our great commitment is not being honored. We've set up something that functions as a law that justifies us Remember, the chap who asked the question of Jesus was seeking to justify himself. 
And we do that, and it leads us to miss what's really going on, to miss the gifts, to miss our neighbors, and to miss the abundance of grace that's being offered us. You see how it works. We don't know what might have been going on with the priest and Levite of Jesus' story, and it's not actually terribly relevant that we do know what makes them tick. What matters is what makes it so very difficult for us to respond appropriately to a neighbor in need and how easy it it is for us to set up something in our minds that functions like a rule or a law and becomes self-justifying, justifying our choices, but not, in the end, freeing us from guilt. So when I was newly ordained and serving in a parish, there was a chap in the parish who I liked, <clears throat> good man. He told me he didn't like saying a confession every week because there were plenty of weeks where he really examined himself and he could not think of anything that he'd done wrong. <laughs> and you know what? I believe him. I believe that he really was morally upright in that sense. But if I had a chance to talk with him now, I'd want to know who made the rules that he hadn't broken. And what rules had he set up to justify himself? And how had that law closed him from the possibility of knowing God's grace? See, if we feel even remotely convicted, convicted as we hear this story about those times when we've allowed self-justifying thoughts and rules to get in the way of our doing and being the people we are created to be and doing the things we were expected to do, then we have the possibility of repentance. Then we have the possibility of forgiveness. Then we have the possibility of opening ourselves to the transforming grace of God. And next time, we're just a little more open and a little more free and a little more generous. And we've got a little more room in our lives for our neighbors when they present themselves to us. We're a little less filled with angst and a little less likely to need to get by by blaming the victim. Self-justifying, thinking, tendency to blame others, hidden motives, these are the things that get in the way. And these are the things that get opened to us in Jesus' life, and Jesus' stories, and Jesus' teachings. And if we find ourselves convicted, we have the possibility of newness of life. Every day, every single one of us, every moment. So let's take time, as we usually do, for prayer, and give thanks for the grace of forgiveness, for the real Samaritans who show up in our own lives, let us begin anew our response to the gospel. Let us pray in silence.